The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. All right, please open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We're going to begin today in Isaiah 49, picking up where we left off last week. If you turn over the back side of the handout where the boxes are, you'll see the texts that we're walking through. Last week we looked at Isaiah's gospel texts, the right column, and we looked at the first, the first of the servant songs. Isaiah's songs that celebrate the coming of the servant, the messianic servant. And I need one of those, if I may. Thank you. And I assume our PowerPoint's going to be up in just a minute, I hope. In Matthew chapter 12, you guys stay in Isaiah 49. In Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 15, we see that the Apostle Matthew truly believed that Jesus was this servant. Here's what it says Jesus, aware of what the, crowd, the, the Pharisees were conspiring to do, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and he ordered them not to make him known. Don't let the world know who I am, is what Jesus said. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. That's a citation right out of Isaiah 42, where we looked last week. That's the first box on the left-hand side, Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. Jesus' activity was done in such a way in order to fulfill what Isaiah had said would happen. A bruised reed he will not break. The hope of that text, if you find yourself bruised, we have a Messiah who will not break you. Instead, he will come to heal you. A faintly burning wick he will not blow out. If you find yourself feeling like you're at the final brink, we have a Messiah who will not sniff you out. No, He will let you continue to burn and and enter into your darkness where the light is burning and care. But He does it in a way that when He came, He didn't make Himself known to everyone until the time was right. Now we pick up the second servant song. Some of these are autobiographical. Others of the songs are biographical. This one is autobiographical, meaning that the servant is doing the talking. 
He's the one declaring what his mission is going to be. So in Isaiah 42, 1-9, I tagged it the servant's ministry. Isaiah 49, 1-7, I've tagged it the servant's mission. The servant's mission. So I'm going to open up there, and I'm going to put the slide that needs to be up. Okay. So we're in Isaiah 49. Beginning in verses 1 and 2. And what we're going to do is is we're going to read this together and you guys are going to help me unpack what we see in the text, what we learn about the Messiah. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Messiah is talking. Yahweh called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. So he's talking. What do we learn about the Messiah from these words, in his own words, as prophesied by Isaiah? What do you see? Characterize him. Pardon? He's named before he was born. Come now. Okay, he is made in such a way and identified with weapons. Specifically, God who called him made his mouth like a sharp sword. What that suggests is that he's a warrior, but a warrior in a different way. He's not going to raise necessarily, physical instruments. No, he's going to have the speech that's like a dagger. And when he begins to talk, it's going to dice and cut and pierce. In the shadow of God's hand, he hid me. What does that say? Concealed protection. See, he's a warrior who's protected by the living God. That's how Jesus enters onto the scene, with a mission that is word-based. And as he talks, it's going to have a piercing effect. And in the process, he'll be protected by God. That's what we learn. He made me like a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. So, he is set up for a purpose for a specific time. And when that Time comes, it's ready to be pulled out of the quiver, put on the bow, and shot with an effective result. So, we're looking at this. This He's talking metaphorically, and we're supposed to read what he's saying and understand it. And now we even have greater eyes than Isaiah did because we can look at it through the lens of the life of Christ. And God said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Okay? Hmm. Maybe we're not talking about the Messiah. Maybe we're talking about the entire people of Old Testament Israel. He's called Israel. 
You're my servant, Israel. Is it possible that we're looking at a collective group that's being named and talking as if they're one person? We'll have to keep reading. You're my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So the mission of Israel is God's glory. God will be made much of in the life of this servant who has a word-based ministry that is piercing and who's protected by the living God. But I said, verse 4, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet, surely, my right is with Yahweh and my recompense is with my God. What does verse 4 mean? What does it suggest? About the mission of the servant. Is it in the world's eyes? In his own eyes. That, that something about the, his own mission as he's carrying it out, it's going to seem like it's a failure. He has a word-based ministry that's piercing, that appears to be not effective. Because as he's talking, very few are listening. And yet it's accomplishing the very task for which God set him out to accomplish. And yet he has a confidence even though it may seem as though his strength is spent and that he's worked for nothing, he ultimately says what? Surely my right is with Yahweh, my recompense is with my God. So he's going to keep going, he's going to trust his future to the God who knows what's best. Now, let me just step back. Review. What is his name? The servant's name. What's his name? Israel. Israel. And he was called from when? He was called from, from the womb. He is God's servant. His name is Israel. And he was called from the womb to be this servant. Now, we've got to keep that in mind as we keep reading. His name is Israel, and he was called from the womb to be the servant. Now it says in verse 5, Now Yahweh says, that is the one who formed me from the womb to be his servant. Now we get mission responsibility. What was the mission of the servant? What does it say? The mission of the servant. What's his name? Israel. So the mission of Israel, the servant of God, is to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. What's his name? Israel. And Israel's mission is to do what? To bring Israel back. Israel's mission is to bring Israel back. And out of all the prophets, this text is more clear than any that Jesus is Israel representing Israel. That he, that one named Israel, has a mission of restoring Israel. That there's a servant, Israel, who has a mission to bring back the nation. And they're both called Israel. And as we read the prophets then, that becomes a little tricky. 
Because we have to recognize the possibility that the mission of Israel, through you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I've raised you up as a kingdom of priests and as a holy nation in order that my excellencies might be proclaimed to the world. The possibility that it's not the nation that's going to accomplish the ultimate purposes of God, but it's the person who's going to accomplish the ultimate purposes of God. The person who represents the many. His name is Israel. The one called from the womb is God's servant Israel, and his mission is to bring Jacob back. That is to restore Israel. But it's not enough that he would just restore Israel. That's what it says in verse 6. It's too light a thing that you should just be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations. That my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And all of a sudden, this person Israel is being identified with the offspring of Genesis 3.15 who would crush all ugliness, who would overcome darkness. Of Genesis 22, verse 17b and 18, your offspring will possess the gate of his enemies. Third masculine singular. As his kingdom expands, it's going to overcome the enemy camps and he's going to possess their gates and through your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. One individual who's going to have an impact on the many, but not only the many in the house of Israel, the many in the world. The world's problems are going to be solved by this servant. It's too light a thing that he would just save the Jews. No, he's going to save you and me. Because that was the purpose for Israel. God didn't raise up Israel in the context of the world so that the world would exalt Israel. No, he raised up Israel for the benefit of the world. Israel was set apart as a servant. And what was true of the whole people is now being focused in on the one. That just as Israel, the nation, was put into the promised land in order to be what Adam was supposed to be in the Garden of Eden... That Adam's paradise and Israel's paradise are one and the same. And that Israel, who's called my firstborn son in Exodus chapter 4, the nation is the firstborn son of God, and we're supposed to connect that back with Adam being the firstborn firstborn son of God in Genesis chapter 5. God made Adam in his likeness, in his image he made him, and Adam gave birth to his own son, his firstborn Seth, in his likeness and his image. So just as Adam gives rise to Seth, so God gave rise to Adam. And Israel is the firstborn of God. And it's merely a pointer to the ultimate son of God, the servant who represents the many. He's the king who's able to stand on behalf of the nation that he's representing. But he's not only representing the nation, he's working for the benefit of the whole world. Now, let's just look at a few texts that point in this direction. Luke chapter 2. Luke 2, 30 through 32. Jesus is brought to the temple, 
and the old man Simeon shows up. Luke chapter 2, 30 and 30 through 32. Simeon says in verse 25, I've been waiting for the consolation of Israel, for Israel to be consoled, for its pain and its darkness to be overcome. I've been waiting. And he came in the spirit into the temple, it says in verse 27, when the parents, that is Joseph and Mary, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, That's shorthand for circumcision. Simeon took up the baby in his arms and he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. I've been waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now I can depart according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for the revelation of the Gentiles, of the nations, and for the glory to your people Israel. This little baby has bound up in his soul all that is needed both for Israel, the nation, and for the nations, the Gentiles. And he's echoing Isaiah's words. This is the one. This is the hope that we've been longing for. Look with me over at Acts 13. Acts 13, 45. This is Paul talking about his own ministry, and I want us to see, I think this is what he's doing. Acts 13, 45. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, Jews, since he You thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the nations, to the ethne. So Gentiles here is the same word that Pastor Kenny was using, ethne, that's translated as nations in Matthew 28. Go into all the world and make disciples of all the Gentiles, of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Same word. We are going to turn our attention to the Gentiles because so the Lord has commanded us, saying, and then what does he do? He cites Isaiah 49. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now that's very intriguing. Because if I'm right, Isaiah 49 is not talking about Paul, it's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the light. But now Paul says, I am on mission, and I have the mission of the Messiah. Because of my identification with him, I am what he was. Now how can he say that? Two texts. Just turn back a few pages to Acts chapter 1. See, he cites Isaiah 49 and he says, God commanded me to be this, to be a light unto the Gentiles. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, 
O Theophilus, that's the book of Luke, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. All that Jesus began to do and to teach. So you read the Gospel of Luke and you learn what Jesus began to do. From his birth all the way up through his death, and then Luke ends with the ascension, all of that window is what Jesus began to do. So we have to ask ourselves, why does it say it's what he began to do? Because the book of Acts is what Jesus continues to do. That the Spirit in Acts 1.8, you'll be filled with power. The Spirit of God will come upon you and you will be my witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. That Spirit is nothing less than the Spirit of Jesus working through His church. That what Paul is doing as missionary is indeed carrying out the work of Jesus. It's Jesus working in him. Now, let me see if I can find this. Yes, in Acts 16, verse 7, it even says that, And when they, came, when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go. The Spirit of the book of Acts is identified as the Spirit of Jesus. Now here's the second text I wanted us to look at. Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, verse 24. We'll begin in verse 22 instead. The Lord God had said, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Now, I've already talked about how Jesus is portrayed in the New Testament as the prophet like Moses. Moses is the prophet who establishes the Old Covenant, and until someone with that kind of authority and that kind of an encounter with the living God and that kind of ability to do signs and wonders like Moses did, everyone was supposed to keep listening to Moses until that greater one came. But as soon as he came, one greater than Moses, a new covenant would be ignited. And no longer would Moses be the authority, the one back to to whom people would look. Now they would look upon the prophet like Moses. Now look what Paul, what Peter does here. Moses said that the Lord God would raise up a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him, whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. That's Deuteronomy 18. Then Peter says, all the prophets who've spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth will be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, singular, Messiah Jesus, sent him to you first. To do what? To bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. You've heard that the prophet is coming, and what Peter's doing is bringing together. You've heard the prophet is coming. You've also heard the servant is coming. You heard that through Abraham the world would be blessed. The servant has come. He came to you first, Jews. But you rejected him. Indeed, you crucified him, Peter says. But all of this was in order that light might come to the Gentiles. 
and might come to you if you have eyes to see. To turn every one of you from your wickedness. Back in Isaiah now. Isaiah 49. Verse 7 is, is the end of this. Thus says Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One. Who is He talking to? To one deeply despised. Abhorrent by the nation. Abhorred by the nation. The servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of Yahweh who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Now that's anticipating where this book is going. One who is abhorred by the very nation he came to serve. Yet kings will prostrate themselves in his presence. All because of Yahweh who is faithful. Turn with me over to chapter 50 now. Chapter 50, verse 4. This is the third servant song. Now this one too is autobiographical. The servant is talking. I call this the servant's obedient suffering. We begin with verse 4 in chapter 50. The sovereign Yahweh has given me the tongue of those who are taught. So we remember that his ministry is in his mouth, it's like a sword. That's in chapter 49. Now he says this, The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not wipe out. He has learnedness, yet it doesn't distance him from the broken. He speaks as one. I mean, think about the the leaders. When he's only 12, he comes to the temple and they're like, where did he get this wisdom? The Pharisees hear the disciples. You're just fishermen. How could you speak the way that you do in Acts chapter 4? We were with Jesus, Peter and John say. The sovereign Yahweh has given me a tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. That's the purpose of being taught by God, in order to help others, never hurt others. Now listen, morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. What does that suggest? This is the Messiah talking. What does that suggest? Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Okay? Jesus does nothing except what he's heard from the Father. That's what I teach you. I speak not on my own authority, but in the authority of the one who sent me. Not only that, what else does it suggest? Daily Daily fellowship with the Father. You think you can make it without your daily devotions and you'll be fine? Jesus didn't think he could. Morning by morning, he engaged the Father. He was awakened and he got up. His ears were awakened, and it's in, that, in those moments of fellowship with the Father that he was equipped for the task that God set before him. This is 
a scathing report on those of us who think that we can go into our day without the Word of God, without an encounter with the living God, without prayer, without Bible reading, without listening. Jesus couldn't do it. He was equipped in His quiet time. Verse 5, The Sovereign Yahweh has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not, my, turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and from spitting. Now put verses 5 and 6 together. What does that tell you about Jesus? God sent him to suffer. This wasn't random. His step into the crowd of animosity, his entrance into a world of a people that hated him, was by his choice, and it was a step of obedience, obedience even to the point of death, death on a cross. Yet he heard, and he obeyed, whatever it takes, wherever you want me to go, I am willing. My friends, the Morgans, I'm I'm just awed. One of our newest global partners sent off to Chad a month and a half ago. Only a month and a half after they gave birth to their sixth child. And they're going into the Sahara Desert where there's no water and no electricity with their six kids into a highly militant, hostile Muslim area that is just broken. Why? Because they heard and they're willing to obey whatever it means, wherever it calls. Because the worth of Christ, the worth of His name, is compelling them. It reminds me of the end of Hebrews where it says, By faith they conquered giants. By faith they entered into the land. By faith they did miracles. And then without a breath, it says, by faith they were sawn in two. By faith they were cursed. By faith they were rejected. A people of whom the world is not worthy. Why is the world not worthy of such things? Because the world is against God, and yet God gives pictures of His worth through His people. That when people look at you, they say, you're different. God is so compelling to you that you're willing to do this kind of Self, pushing down self for the sake of what he's calling you to do. Whatever it means. Money, time, treasure, talent. I'll do it. That was the life of Christ. He was awakened. His ears were awakened. He heard what he was supposed to do and he acted. It was obedience. Obedience into suffering. Because of the worth of his God. The worth of his Father. Listen to what he says. He gave his back to those who would strike. He entered into disgrace, into spitting. I hid not my face from them. Verse 7. But the Lord Yahweh helps me. This is the hope. This is the promise that keeps Jesus going. And it's the only promise that can keep us going. Yahweh is our keeper. Yahweh is our helper. Thank you. Thank you.
Yeah, that's good. Let's just pause there for a second. The question is, okay, um, am I in disobedience if I haven't gone to Chad? Not necessarily. Over Christmas break, I was gathered, I was actually not gathered. There was a group gathered in, in the kitchen of the house, of my parents' house, and a whole bunch of siblings were talking about radical manhood and radical womanhood, and how, and they were, certain voices were downplaying the call to radicalness because it makes it sound as though being a stay at home mom isn't worth it. Or being a faithful businessman isn't worth it. And I want, what I said to Teresa, she just brought this up, the possibility that you can be a radical woman as a stay-at-home mom. Or as a radical business, radical woman for God in the business place. Or in, uh, as a school teacher. That in your engagement with the political sphere, Tim... You can be radical for God and not cross the ocean, but cross the sidewalk. To have a boldness uh, for, for Bethany getting through her schooling and doing so dependently. I try, my students, um, one of the challenges that they have is wrestling with how do I worship God when I'm doing Hebrew translation? My affections are not being stirred unless they're um, there are emotions being stirred, but they're usually not affections. <laughs> it's more like... Uh, you know, the, the, the frustration. I can't learn vocabulary quick enough. This is taking me far too long. And in those moments, worship takes on a very different sense. It's not worship of adoration as much as it is a worship of dependence. That's radical, though. It's radical to, go over, to overcome self-reliance and to say, God, I'm going to enter into a day of study. Or I'm going to enter into a day of sitting in front of a computer monitor or answering phones or homeschooling my children. That you do it from the beginning and you say, I'm going to enter into this day and I want to do it for your glory and not my own. That's radical. It is totally counter to everything we are in our being. And if you can get to that point, God is working in your soul. And you can be grateful and then pray that you don't have pride in your humility. That you can be radical right here, but also never content. Because God may indeed call you not simply to be a sender, but a goer. He may have you let go of your job and move from large corporate America into small missionary school. For the good of the kingdom. For the glory of God. And all of your peers are saying, what are you doing? That may be your calling. Or it may be, continue to remain faithful and dig deep. Continue to remain faithful, praying for your children who are rebellious right now. Looking to me as the only hope and only help that you have for their goodness and their future. Praying daily that you would be filled with the Spirit so that when the moment comes on the phone or across the turkey table at Thanksgiving, that you can share the right word that actually pierces into the heart. 
It won't happen unless you're ready. And you won't be ready unless you have that daily time of filling up. That's radical. It's the kind of life that Jesus had. He never left an area that we're aware of more than 100 miles. In 33 years, we don't know of his traveling beyond a 100-mile diameter. That's quite a life. He raises up with a father who's a builder, either a mason or a carpenter. The word could go either way. His dad was a worker with his hands, and Jesus grew up learning a task and loving his God. And he was doing exactly what God called him to do, so that at the age of 33, it could birth into something brand new. I was talking this morning to, is it Brian Pratt? Is that his name? Brian? Ten years in Kazakhstan. He's trained as an engineer. He and his wife go on for, as missionaries for ten years. Now they've been back here in the States for nine And he felt like God was calling... I mean, he has this urge in his soul to be a pastor. He got accepted to go to Bible school. And he just felt like God was saying, it's not time. And so here he is. He is still doing his secular work, day in and day out, as an engineer, ministering to non-believers. He's longing for more, but he's trying to be faithful until God gives him the green light. That's radical. A willingness to not jump the gun until you truly believe this is right. Right timing for for you. Right timing for your family. When God is on the throne of your life, that's radical. Let Him remain there. The caution is when we begin to go day in and day out through our routine, acting like all is well and we've forgotten Him. We're not being intentional in the Word. We're not being prayerful. All of a sudden, that's not radical at all. That's just normal, everyday living where the rest of the world is going, acting as though God is small and not worth our lives. Chapter 50, verse 9. Behold, the sovereign Yahweh helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. This servant cannot be declared guilty. I've engaged Jews who have gone to Isaiah 53, where we're about to go, and they say the servant in Isaiah 53 is Israel, the corporate nation. And one of the things I've done is walk them through both Isaiah 53, where deceit was not in his mouth, and then also go back to Isaiah 50, where it says... Behold, Yahweh is my helper, who will declare me guilty. Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Because no one will find sin in me. None. And then I point them to... Let me see if I can find this quickly. Okay, on your blue sheet... I say, Jesus is Israel, right in the middle. Isaiah's servant, Isaiah's perspective. And I say, the servant is without sin. Isaiah 50, verse 9. 
and then I list a whole bunch of texts, all of which use the word for servant, and all of them mention the sinfulness of the servant. So, for example, in Isaiah 41, verse 8, this is what we read. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying, You are my servant, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I'll strengthen you. I'll uphold you. I'll help you. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all you who are incensed against you. All who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the Lord who helps you. Isaiah 42, 16 Ah, this is the one. I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are things that I do, and I do not forsake. Hear you, deaf, verse 18. Look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one? Or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but he does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. What's the point? There's a servant and there's a servant. The servant that's the nation is blind and corrupt and sinful. And then we hear the songs of the servant, and all of a sudden that servant is sinless, guiltless. There's no deceit in his mouth. And the Jew who wants to say, look when you read Isaiah, we are the servant. I say, oh yes, you are the servant in many texts. Guilt-ridden, sinful, deaf, and blind. But you are not the servant who is without guile and no deceit is in his mouth. When we read about that servant who was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon Him. Who's the us? Us is Isaiah talking on behalf of the corporate servant who's filled with sin, talking about the servant, Jesus, who stands on their behalf, representing them. Not he, When Jesus dies, He dies not because of His own sin. He dies because of the sins of the world. He is guiltless, and therefore when he goes to the cross, it's not because of his own fault. That's the point. The, I believe it's part of the mystery. It's part of the, 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 but to talk about it as a secret, I want to balance that by saying that all the prophets, says Peter in, first, in Acts chapter 3, all the prophets from Samuel until now anticipated this day, the day of the servant when the blessings would come. That when Isaiah wrote this, I think he in his mind was distinguishing between the servant, the nation, and the servant, the Messiah. Even he saw it, but most of his audience did not see it. 
But we certainly, this side of Christ, have much better eyes than they would have had. But the language of, you are my servant Israel, and I've set you apart to bring Israel back, I think Isaiah would have understood that there is a representative of the many. One man who's going to be representing the whole. But it likely would have been blurry to his own audience at some points. And blurry to him, perhaps, at some points. Not as clear as it is to us, anyway. Look at verses 10 and 11. Who among you fears Yahweh and obeys the voice of his servant? So I'm in chapter 50, 10 and 11. Do you fear the Lord? Do you obey the voice of his servant? That suggests that the servant is the mouthpiece for God, and when the servant speaks, we have to obey him. Do you obey the voice of his servant? Then notice what it says. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light, the answer to those who are in darkness is to trust in the name of the Lord. Verse 11 is not the answer to those who find themselves in darkness. There's two options when you find yourself in darkness. Verse 11 is the bad option. Behold, all you who kindle a fire. Who need to kindle a fire? Those who are in darkness. Those who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches. Go ahead, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from your hand, this you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. What's going on? There are two options when you're in darkness. You can either do what you you can either try to make it on your own, craft your own light, equip yourself with a burning torch, or in the midst of your darkness, you can trust the living God. And most of the world is in a torch building project. They're living in darkness and they're looking for any ways they can to appease the shadows. And they're building all these little lights that ultimately will not carry them through the darkness. Indeed, the darkness will last for eternity. They shall lie down in torment with the darkness never changing. So rather than becoming a torch builder, trust the living God. He's the answer. And and how do I trust Him? In what direction does it go? The answer comes in Isaiah 52. Turn over there with me. And this, we have to go through relatively fast. Let's just, you've all read this, but let's just read it in the lens that we've been looking at it today. Behold my servant, verse 13 is where this actually begins. I would have started the chapter division at 52.13. Behold my servant, there it is, he shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. This sets the the ultimate goal for the servant's life. He shall be high and and lifted up, exalted over all things. Indeed, at his name, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of children of mankind, so he shall awaken or sprinkle, two possibilities, many nations, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. We've already heard that in the earlier text 
Isaiah 49, verse 7. For that which has not been told them, they see. That which they have not heard, they know. Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I call verses 1 through 3 the rejection of the servant. He grew up before Yahweh as a young plant. This is an echo of that Garden of Eden imagery that we saw earlier in the book. Behold, the entire forest will be burned, and then it will be burned again, but up will rise a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse being David's father. A new David will rise. He will sprout forth and it will open up the age of new creation. That's what Jesus does. This is an echo of that. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty. He just looked small. Why would we look at him? No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The servant's rejection. We did not esteem him. Now we move into the servant's sacrifice and substitution. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. When we looked at him, we thought he's dying for his own sins. He's blasphemous. He's not God dying on our behalf. We looked at him and we esteemed him stricken of God. But, here's the truth, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He wasn't due any of this. He was like an unblemished lamb. In order so that we know when that lamb is sacrificed, it's not because it had a defect. It died on my behalf. The chastisement that he underwent brought me peace, and with his stripes we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him all of our iniquity. Now we now move to the servant's humble submission. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. There's that quietness of spirit. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he is taken away. And as for this generation, as for the generation that was alive in his day, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? Who among them would notice what he was really doing? They made his grave with the wicked and like a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now we move to the servant's success and exaltation. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. When the servant's soul makes an offering for guilt under the good pleasure of God. It was God's purpose, His pleasure, His will to crush His Son. Not ultimately for that end, but so that all the sins of mankind might be piled up on Him, that He might make an offering for guilt, and then if He does that, He shall see His offspring. He's dead on the altar, but if He goes through the altar, if Friday happens, Sunday morning will come. And he will arise from the grave and he will see offspring. 
Jesus, who never married physically, has offspring. He will see them, and we will see him. He shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. If he's willing to be obedient to the point of death, he will be exalted, and all of his own will be gathered to him. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. For the joy set before him, he will endure the cross. By his knowledge... By the servant's knowledge shall the servant, that is, the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He is righteous, and through this act, many will become righteous. They'll be accounted, considered righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. That's that great exchange, one of the clearest statements in all the Old Testament of the full exchange. Our sins over to Him, Him bearing our iniquities, and He the righteous one, making, accounting us righteous. Therefore I'll divide Him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because He poured out His soul to death, and He was numbered with the transgressors. Yet He bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let me just point out a few things as we close. He makes intercession for the transgressors. Romans 8.34, that's what Christ is doing for us right now. He is interceding before the throne of God on behalf of every one of you who is His own. He knows your pain and He knows your sin. And if you are God's, then you are His and He will never let you out of His hand. And God always listens to the prayers of His Son He's praying for you, just like He did back in John 17 when He prayed for all those who would believe His own disciples' teaching. He prayed for you 2,000 years ago and He continues to pray today, pleading that you will run from your pornography, run from your bitterness, run from your apathy. And He who began the good work will be faithful to do it. Don't give in and don't give up. Keep fighting against it, trusting that all the power that you need will be there for you when the time comes. Because Jesus, who rose from the dead, is praying for you. Number two. Go back. This section... By, in verse 8, "...by oppression and judgment He has taken away, and as for His generation who is considered..." that he was cut off out of the land of the living. The Ethiopian eunuch quotes that text in Acts chapter 8. And Philip says, do you know what you're reading? And he gets up on the chariot with him and says, you're reading about Jesus. Philip saw it, and we should celebrate it. And then I close just reading 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 and following. 1 Peter 20, chapter 2, this is where we close. 1 Peter chapter 2, 22 and following. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, 
but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. All that's Isaiah 53. And Jesus acted for our sake, not only to forgive us of sins past, but that we would recognize the worth of Christ and say, He's worth running from sin today. I will not go back in that direction. He's leading me out of sin in the righteousness of God. Celebrate the gospel from the Old Testament. Celebrate the portrait of Christ. And as you do, may the worth of Christ heighten in your soul and may it push you to be better godly husbands, better godly wives and mothers, better workmen, better fathers, better moms. May the worth of Christ say, I have to run from this sin. He paid everything for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you did. You were pleased, pleased to crush your son in order that we might have life abundantly. We have a God who takes pleasure in his own, who is singing over those whom he has redeemed, even now. Let us rest in your favor for us, in the sacrifice of Christ, in the exaltation of Christ, a Christ who did this, that he might see his offspring, prolong his days, account many righteous, and intercede on our behalf, even as he bears our iniquities. We thank you that every sin that we struggle with has already been pardoned if we have been in Christ. You are for us 100% right now. Help us hear your words, I love you. I am pleased with you, all because of what Christ has done. Help us rest in the hope of the gospel. Good news, good news. Our God reigns, and that God who reigns over all through his Son is not against us, but for us. For his glory we pray. For our pleasure we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.